Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer of the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I interview Asif Kapadia. He's directed three extraordinary portrait films constructed entirely out of archival footage. The first was Senna, about the Formula One race car driver, released in 2010. Asif's second biography was Amy, about the singer Amy Winehouse, that won the Oscar for Best Documentary in 2016. Now the third is Diego Maradona, about the soccer legend who led Argentina to an unforgettable World Cup championship. As I speak, the film is set to make its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in a few days. Our conversation was recorded in March in Copenhagen before a live audience at the CPH Docs Festival. Throughout the talk, Asif details how he works with archival footage to construct his films. Senna was an unexpected theatrical success in the U.S., but when Asif was first creating it out of YouTube footage, he faced considerable resistance. But along the way, it's loads of challenges and battles to start with yourself, figuring out, do you know what you're doing? Have you got a story that's worth telling? Is there a character? Is there, how do you, how do you get anyone on your team to, to buy into the idea that you have, which you haven't fully formed, and then to follow it through to whether or not it's going to work for an audience and whether, you know, distributors who at the beginning thought, why should we pay for a film that we were able to watch for free on TV? Asif came to documentary making after he had already established himself directing fiction. He made costume dramas with action, romance, and exotic locales, including the Arctic in Far North and the Himalayas in The Warrior. In the barren wastelands, the only thing crueler than nature is the cruelty of man. After gaining recognition as a fiction director, Asif was approached with the idea to make a documentary about the Brazilian race car driver Ayrton Senna. The film had the backing of Universal Studio. Oh my goodness, this is fantastic! I think we are watching the arrival of Ayrton Senna, a truly staggering talent. ranked among the all-time greats. How do you feel about being world champion? It's not a bad feeling at all, is it? Ayrton <laughs> has a small problem. He thinks that he can't kill himself. And I think that's very dangerous. You are competing to win. And if you no longer go for a gap, you're no longer a racing driver. I was treated like a criminal. The best decision is my decision. I can't stand this. Walking away from the dark forces just doesn't become an option. I was not going to give up. So have any of your girlfriends ever asked you to go faster? Yeah. There was an energy, a force, a spirit. It was electrifying. 
When Asif first started on Senna, he never expected that it would be told strictly with archival footage. During production, he filmed traditional interviews. But it was the archival that most captured his attention. It would take him several years to pull off his vision of letting that footage tell the story. Our conversation starts there. Uh, it was a studio film. It's got Universal at the beginning, and they'd never made a doc. I'd never made a doc. Um, so there were all these challenges, and they were like, it, it started off also, I was hired to do it. I was a hired hand. I think of all the filmmakers I've heard today, you know, everyone else has originated a project, or it's about them, or it's about their family, literally. And, and then I'm like this outsider who kind of thought I'd just dip my toe into docs for a bit because it'd, be, <laughs> it'd be easy, it'd be a laugh. And, uh, and then I'd go off and make a real movie. And then you start, and I got obsessed, and I got obsessed with him, and I got obsessed with the process, and I got obsessed with character. And the big thing, that in, one of the many instincts I had was coming from a background of fiction, the kind of films that I made or wanted to make or the filmmakers that I liked generally were ones where the filmmaker is a invisible in a way and it's about the story and the characters that you're following and if I watch a film and I go oh that's a really interesting tracking shot that goes on for five minutes I'm not in that movie anymore I feel like I'm watching someone showing off a bit and so that is my kind of personal taste with fiction films so with this one there was a question quite early on whoops sorry um for me again I think a lot of people are going to say what the hell did you do because you just need a good editor, don't you? And that idea of pressure, literally, from production, go and shoot something, because it's like you're meant to be making a film. You don't shoot anything. And I'm like sitting there in the edit going, I just want to see this stuff still. I'm just still thinking. That whole thing, there was a production manager who kept setting up shoots, because she had to justify her income, and then she could go to her boss and say, well, I set the shoot up, and I booked the equipment, and this guy didn't use it. And the production said, you wasted all that money. And I'm like, why do we need a production manager? We don't, I don't want to shoot anything. And, the, and at the beginning of the process, I remember the studio, we literally like, we can get a 3D camera and we'll put it on a racing car. We can go and shoot it in 3D. And I'm like, oh, shit, when did I say? I'm thinking this is all going to be YouTube, you know. <laughs> I think this is really, this is universal and working title films who make like Four Weddings of a Funeral and Notting Hill. And I'm showing them in their theatre uh, clips of YouTube and logos going, I think this is going to work. And they're going, this guy's nuts. <laughs> Go and shoot something. And so there was this whole thing of no one really believing in it. When the film came out, there was no American distributor. The film eventually showed in Japan. Had a tiny, I wasn't invited. That was the premiere in Japan. Wasn't invited. It showed in Brazil. It failed in Brazil. The US dropped it. Um, Focus had it. Didn't want it. Um, the rest of the territories in Europe, a lot of them dropped it. France, I went to a screening two weeks ago. It was like the first public screening that I've been at in France. I made it 10 years ago. So this was the real journey of it. It did go to Sundance with no fanfare, no publicity, no PR person, nothing behind it. We showed it, and it was packed. It did really well. Didn't win anything from the jury, but it won the audience prize. And that was a consistent thing. The audiences loved it. Even when we were work in progress, audiences loved it. Whenever we'd start the film, if there were 50 people in the room at the beginning, at the ending when the lights turned off, there were 70 in the room. I'm like, when did they come in? And if there were 100 people in the room, there were 150 at the ending. And something about the character and, I guess, the technique kept bringing people back again and again. And that was really good. That, I learned a lot from... You can never screen your film enough while you're making it to learn from your cock-ups and your mistakes, but also how does it play to the audience. 
and kind of going with the audience and not necessarily sometimes the producers, the execs, the people who are can hire and fire me. And they did consider firing me on this film. I mean, there was I was close to being kicked off the film. People may not like talking at me talking about that now, but it was the truth. People did not think the idea of doing a film without talking heads worked. You have to see their eyes. You have to see what they're saying. How else do I know if they're telling the truth? But my whole thing was, yeah, but I can't interview him. And I want to tell the story from his point of view. And he's dead, so we're going to have to spend a hell of a lot of time figuring out what did he say, what did he feel, what was his intention. And all I care about is going with him. And I don't care about the rival's version. I don't want to be even. I want you to come out thinking you're Brazilian, and you're a Senna fan, and all you care about is him. You don't go into anyone else's car but his. So all of this would be, if you were doing a fiction film, this is the point of view of telling the story from your central character. So it essentially was just applying all those rules to a film where I didn't shoot any of the rushes. I had, and I call them rushes, not archive, I had this amazing set of rushes, dailies, that existed that no one had seen the potential to. And then that was what the idea was. I, I want to ask you a very technical question. When it comes to using YouTube and that kind of found footage, um, what did you learn about like, being able to make it look as good as possible for the big screen? So, so uh, really important and interesting. It's, it's to, having come from a fiction background, and I've shot films in anamorphic, and I've shot films on Super 35 mil, and I've shot on film and cut on film and projected on film, and I'd, you know, I came from being, and I went to kind of art school and I was obsessed with production design and costume design and, you know, all of that I'm into and was obsessed with. And I felt there was a point when I made a couple of films where that obsession with perfection went against the film. And part of this process for me was freeing myself up as a filmmaker to say, it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what it's shot on. Emotionally, it has to be right. So I'm now like telling everyone, Does, who cares about you know, having something that's that size camera or this lens or that? Bullshit. It's like, get there, get the moment, get it emotionally. So this was interesting because what I felt we had a, an access to was a really powerful character. It was, very, it was a, a really emotional story and a really interesting rivalry. I love sport. I love the real idea of you hate your rival and your rival hates you. I don't want to make a film now where they say, he was great, we were really good mates, and I was like, bullshit, I, I, don't, I don't want to make that film, I want to make a film where you hate each other, and you would do whatever you have to do to win, including crashing into one another. So to do that, sometimes you have one take, and if that take is wobbly and shaky and out of focus, you kind of weigh it up, and obviously when you're dealing with archive, you don't know what the master's going to look like, you don't know if the master exists, you just have to forget that. Just tell the story, put it together, and if it's right, it will work. And, you know, this film started off with clips from YouTube, and there is still something in there which we never got a master from, which is from Japan, which is literally the master was a clip off YouTube. But then in the end, the film was shown quite a few countries around the world on IMAX. And it looked great, because I like film, and film is imperfect. It has grain, it has texture. And in a weird way, I've kind of gone full circle from shooting on film and loving the imperfections, to going back to kind of video formats or wherever it is, but I love it because it's imperfect, because there was one moment when something happened, there was a camera there, there was no second take, and that pays off, I think, emotionally. If, in this case, this style of filmmaking, you stay in the moment. The problem is when you cut out, 
to the present day, and it looks beautiful. And then you go back, and you go, oh, that looks shit, doesn't it? And with Amy, particularly, the beginning of the film, is, it's awful, technically. Um, um, it's the scene where she High sings... video footage or yeah, whatever. It's, yeah, it's... I mean, a, a lot of this has become quite interesting because I've become very uh, au fait with, like, formats of different countries over the years. And looking at something and going, that's a really awful... Technically, it's awful, the beginning of Amy. But you see this young girl singing Happy Birthday, and you have to weigh up. It helps if the sound is good. It helps if the score is good. It helps if the sound design is good because the, a bad picture can look better if it sounds good. Bad picture, bad sound, you've got a problem. So you've got to kind of weigh up. When does it look good? But emotionally, it might be weak. Sometimes it looks terrible, but emotionally it's really powerful. But the audio, I can clean up. And there's always a way to make it sound better. And so that's kind of what I do. Senna went on to win England's BAFTA Award for Best Documentary. Asif's next major project was on Amy Winehouse. It got started only a year after her death at age 27 from alcohol poisoning. She was highly intelligent, the most intelligent person I knew. She was so utterly authentic. Amy, just give us a smile and then we can turn the camera off. Do you promise? <laughs> she had such an emotional relationship to music. You're becoming an artist in the public eye. The more people see of me, the more they'll realise that all I'm good for is making music. And the Grammy goes to Amy Winehouse. She was one of the truest artists I ever heard. The world wanted a piece of her. Amy was a girl that just wanted to be loved. I fell in love with someone who I would have died for. And that's like a real drug, isn't it? This is someone who is trying to disappear. The thing is, I don't think I'm going to be at all famous. Amy is a cautionary tale about fame. It shares that theme with other recent documentaries, including Janice Little Girl Blue, Kurt Cobain Montage of Heck, and Whitney. They all depict fame as a corrosive force that brings massive corporate pressure, reshapes close relationships, invites press scrutiny, and offers unfettered access to drugs as an escape. Watching these films, it's a wonder that anyone survives fame. In the case of Amy, Asif gained access to many of her oldest friends who bore witness to her transformation. The film gave radical insight into her popular song, Rehab. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. I ain't got the time, and if my daddy thinks I'm fine. That lyric, I ain't got the time, and if daddy thinks I'm fine, was barely understood by listeners until Asif gave it context. When Amy wrote the song, her friends were intervening to get her into rehab. But her father, Mitch Winehouse, let her off the hook. He told her she was fine while he was enjoying the benefits of her celebrity. 
I asked Asif how he wound up working on the film. My hero growing up was always Martin Scorsese. So Scorsese would always do docs in between his movies, and Spike Lee has always done them as well. So I always thought, I'm just a director, and you direct everything. And I do commercials, and I do short films, still make short films, and I have done television. So I like directing. My, first and foremost, that's the thing I love. And one of the things I have directed are docs. And so in between the films, I, I did a film for the London Olympics around 2012. And um, I also had done some other dramas. The thing is, they're not relevant to this, but they're kind of other movies that I've been doing in parallel. Um, the film for the London Olympics was key because it was um, a kind of commission. There were four films. Mike Lee did one, Lynn Ramsey did one, and there was someone else, and they asked me to do one. I kept saying, I haven't got time. And they were like, there's a lot of money, and they want to be a Londoner. Can you do it? And I, I didn't have time. And then in the end, I, right at the last minute, I said, OK, I'll do it. And I had an idea, which was, I'm going to shoot the whole film from a helicopter. And it was like, mm, OK. This is pre-drones, so it was like <laughs> literally the old-fashioned way of shooting. So I was like, I want to do an overview of London. I want to do an overview of the city. So I spent a few months making a film about where I'm from. And I think something happened in my head, because there was a particular moment in London, the fact that we'd never win anything, right? We hadn't had the World Cup or the Olympics, anything for years, and suddenly it was coming, and it was like really great and exciting. And then the day after it got announced, all the bombs went off in London, 7-7 bombs, and it was like all disaster. And then there was a financial crisis, and we're still in bloody crisis now. So, so I found this interesting idea of going from making a film about a Brazilian sportsman to making a film about my city and thinking about London. And it was in the middle of that process, I think I got a call from James, who produced Senna, James Gay Reese, and he said, look, someone who really loves Senna at Universal has said, do you want to make a film about Amy Winehouse? What do you think? And I, I, I thought about it, and I, I just let it mull over in my head. And having done a few other things, I, and having been offered a lot of films about sportsmen, that was the other thing, and turned them all down. I was like, I'm not interested, don't want to do sport again. Um, I, then, I then thought, okay, Amy, let me just listen to her music and just feel the vibe. And I realized that we've heard there was a very strong question that I had. I live in North London. I lived in Camden for about 10 years. I didn't know Amy, but she kind of was like a girl down the road. And I just remember thinking, when she was alive, I just kept thinking, what? Why is no one looking after her? What the hell's going on? Why is she on stage? Why is she performing? Why is no one stopping this? Why is she lying in a gutter outside a pub in Camden? And I know lots of people, you know. And she was a laughing stock at that point. And so that question was enough for me to say, look, I'll do it. And this is where, having come off the back of Senna, I went for a meeting at Universal Music, which was her label, and I said, I'm interested. I don't know what the film is yet. And I had three people in the room. I had to meet her father, who was in charge of the estate. I had to meet her second manager, Ray, and I had to meet the label boss. And, uh, and they're all kind of in the film, in a way. Um, so I said, I am interested. You're asking me to do this film. I'm interested in doing it if you give me all the music, give me all the publishing. They're paying for it. Pay for it, but leave me alone. For two years, just let me talk to whoever I want to talk to. Let me go off. We know she died. We know she died of addiction issues. We're going to have to deal with that. If you want to make a film, which is like, everything was great. Look how brilliant she is. There's loads of other people you could ask. I've never made a music video in my life, but I'm sure there's loads of them who would love to do it. And they were like, fine, we, go ahead, do what you want. So that's how we started. And that was all because of Senna. 
that we were able to kind of almost say, this is the only way I want to do it. And if it's any other way. So through the process, when the phone did ring, saying, we hear you're talking to so-and-so, don't believe her, she's... I'm like, remember that first conversation we had? I'm going to talk to everyone. The only way I can figure this one out is if I am allowed to speak to everyone to get an overview. And, and the other thing that was really interesting about Amy, of all the films I've made all my life, short films, everything I've done, it was the first one where literally there was no piece of paper. There was never a pitch. There was never a treatment. There was never a document. There was no script, nothing. It was literally, there was an idea, there's a character. I'm going to talk to people. I don't... <laughs> I could just be lazy or I have a way of working. I don't go and read loads of books about a person. I don't care what some author's written. I'm going to talk to the people who are there. I'm going to figure out who's important. Weirdly enough, just before we came in, I got a message from Nick Shemansky. It was Amy Smith. So obviously we're vibing. He, he was the first manager who discovered it, and he was, like the, he was the lock that first kind of got us into Amy. No one's ever heard of him before, but he knew her from when she was a kid. He got her signed. He, trusted, you know, he was the one who brought her through and cared about her, but also he realized when this is going badly, he's like, I'm out, I'm walking away, this is not good for her. But even when she wasn't his manager, when she was in a bad way, that's who she'd call to say, come and save me. I mean, I don't know where I am, I'm, I'm in a toilet somewhere, and there's someone banging on the door. And Nick would leave his wife in, in the middle of the night and go and find her and take her home. So he was the key, and obviously if I'd read the books, he would never be in it, because he'd never given an interview. So that... that so you mentioned as one of those gatekeepers, Amy Winehouse's uh, father, the f people who watch the film uh, can come away with a very critical uh, view of him. Um, I wonder how you navigated uh, that with, with him as a gatekeeper to this material. Yes, um, I had an instinct when I was first watching her while she was alive that, hmm, there's something not right. What's, where's the family? Where are... Where are these people? And then I realized where they are because they're on the radio or on TV. Now, like, what are you doing on TV when your daughter's in that state? I don't understand what's going on. So, yeah, these, I had an instinct, but in the end, it was like, I've got to just trust the story and I've got to research it. And what happened was, I'm not in the music business. I'm not in any way linked to this. I'm not kind of, there may be kind of a journalistic aspect to what one does, but. There was a lot of people who spoke about Amy, who were in the news, who wrote books, and then there were people who had never spoken, and I realized they were the ones who probably are more reliable and talk, speak the truth. They had absolutely no trust of a filmmaker, of anyone that's ever done anything like this, because they felt they, everyone played a part in what happened to Amy or made money out of her. So, and it was only a year after Amy had died. It was really soon, and even I thought, this is too soon. L let her just lie in peace, let her go. But, unlike Senna, which was like 13 or 14 years after he died, I made the film. <gasps> Might have ruined it. Yeah. Um, Amy was raw. Her life was raw. The way she talked and the way she acted and her music and all that was raw. And the emotions were still raw. And I thought the reason we have to do this now is that I don't want people to forget. I want that rawness to come out and that anger to come out and that passion. And, and people, everyone cried during the interviews. Um, the kind of process of interviewing changed. With Senna, I did start shooting interviews on camera because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And then bit by bit, I did more and more on a Zoom or I did them on different devices. But I shot them on camera because I was kind of... I had a production manager get bloody booking a camera. <laughs> um, and I thought, oh, well, there'll be some DVD extras or something out of it. With Amy, I never had a camera and I would sit in a safe space where people could come, talk to me. No one would know that we're meeting. I won't tell anyone what we speak about. There'd be a microphone, 
not even a mixer in the room, and literally I would turn the lights off and we'd sit in the dark and we'd just talk. And if you want to talk for five minutes, fine, or ten minutes, but invariably once people started to talk, three hours later we're still talking, all of this stuff comes out, the therapy kind of starts happening, and they're like, you've got to talk to so-and-so, you've got to talk to so-and-so, you've got to talk to so-and-so. And once I built up some trust, everyone had a bit of video or a photo, and then only then did I ask for it, and only then were they willing to share it. So at the beginning, I had no footage at all, just Amy's songs and lyrics, which became the spine, and lots of voices, um, and bit by bit, we started to find material. Amy had its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in 2015. Her father, Mitch Winehouse, quickly denounced it, telling The Guardian newspaper it was a disgrace. I asked Asif how he took that reaction. In the end, I spoke to 120 people. as one person who spoke out about it. Um, and, you know, this person is quite powerful in the media. You know, he has lots of friends in tabloid magazines and newspapers and, and media organizations. We knew that going in, and we knew we were taking this person on. And there was a particular interview that we did in New York with somebody that was part of Amy's team. And my producer and I walked out, and we were walking down the street going, what the hell have we got ourselves into? Because a lot of the people who spoke to us said, this film will never come out. If you tell the truth, no one will ever see it. And so that idea of how can we make a film that we want people to see, but that deals with the issues, and very complex issues, because how can you somehow say the family, who obviously must love their children, are somehow to blame for what happened to their children, but that everyone involved kind of kept telling us what was going on, and it was just such a dark story. And there's a longer version of the film, and there's other versions of the film, which, you know, people who saw it, just like, it's so much darker than, in a way, what gets released. But that's because all of the films that I've made, there's a five-hour cut, a four-hour cut, a three-hour cut. And you just realize, well, if we're going to do it, we've got to be true to her. And, and a lot of people said, Amy wouldn't want this film to happen. Amy wouldn't want this film to happen. But in the end, we, what we hoped people would say but, is, I'm I sorry, think well, she... Would or would wouldn't. Not. At would the beginning, not, yeah. it was like, she doesn't want anyone talking about this stuff. She doesn't want to be famous. She doesn't want to be talking about... You're just taking advantage of her. And those same people at the ending, once they saw the film, said, actually, we think you've done the right thing because in a way, the truth is out about certain people who perhaps didn't have her best interests at heart and no one else could say it because if they tried, they got shut down, they got pushed out and publicly attacked in the press and most of them were still trying to have a career in music. So they were slightly taking on a machine that they were worried would stop their career because they were all involved. And I was like, I don't give a shit about it. I'm not interested in that. And so that was important and we had to be honest to her. And I guess it comes back to the technique of not my opinion, it's not your opinion. This is what happened in the footage, in the archive at the time. I'm just giving you the essence of what you said and what you did. I haven't made that up. It's not a point of view. Deny it. And, and he did try to deny some of the things. And then I could point to 15 other things that I know or that I saw that I didn't put in a film for whatever reason. And that would end the conversation very quickly doesn't mean they don't stop going on social media or radio stations and TV stations and attacking you, but literally it came down to one person. There isn't anyone else. Her mum, you know, well, didn't have the same opinion, let's mm -hmm. just say. Mm -hmm. um, so you said that uh, you had been saying no to all these sports films. Uh, Never again. <laughs> that uh, you uh, were... I, I'm a man of my word. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, so shit. what's your new project? <laughs> <sighs> so, um, this uh, guy, I, I read a book about him, I think when I was still at university, and I'm a big football fan, 
So that doesn't count, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, and I thought it was just a really complex, interesting character. And then after Amy, I went off and did a few other things and did quite a bit of drama. And then someone came along and said, look, there's this footage that somebody started shooting. Diego's first agent uh, had this idea of, well, let's make a movie about Diego. He's brilliant. And this was in 1981. Wow. And that we've just finished that film, basically. That footage was shot in 1981 onwards by a couple of private camera people and on Umatic. So literally, I'm started on Anamorphic and Super 35, and I've gone backwards through my career. <laughs> back to I don't even know if anyone knows what Umatic is, but my first short film was shot on Umatic. That's where I'm at. And uh, this footage existed somewhere in Italy. It's kind of infamous. And uh, we basically we managed to get our foot hands on it. And I looked at it, and I just thought he's a really interesting guy who... So is this one that was propelled by you, or would it, was it another case of someone coming to you with the... I mean, I'm obviously useless at uh, coming up with ideas. Generating ideas. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I just wait to see what comes up in a coffee shop. Um, but it, it, there's got to be something in it for me. So a lot of people might contact me or with a uh, project or an idea, and I kind of do things. But then there was something about his character, and his journey is incredible. And that's why I thought the journey, he happens to be a footballer. But, but he, what he gets up to and what happened to him has much wider themes, I think. Diego Maradona grew up poor in a family of eight children near Buenos Aires. He rose to fame playing football in the 1980s, setting record prices for his talent, first at Barcelona, then transferring to the smaller Napoli club in southern Italy. He is ranked alongside Pele as one of the game's greats. Asif's film focuses on the years in Napoli with the high drama of an opera. Maradona lived large, and Napoli's mafia hovered in the background. Compared to Asif's previous subjects of Senna and Amy, one big difference is that Maradona is still alive and still making headlines. That was a big part of the, one of the reasons I wanted to do it, was I've got to deal with a different way of telling a story, because he's around, and he's a big presence, and whenever you think you've got an angle, he'll do something next week, which makes it all seem irrelevant, what you've just done. And that idea of how do you end the film was an interesting challenge that I wanted to kind of have to take on. No one would talk to me unless he approved it. I did meet him. We had to do a deal with him. We needed his image rights before we could start this film. You know, he, he, he's got kind of good lawyers with good hair and suits and stuff, you know. So it's like, we got, you start, the, the whole process begins with, can we do a deal with the lawyers? And um, I didn't even go to that meeting. I was off doing something else. My producers went, and it was somewhere in London in a hotel. Diego was in his room in bed just texting. And the lawyer would say, maybe you want to try and offer again. Oh, you know, whatever it was. So I wasn't there. But we had to get him on board. And then the deal was three sets of interviews with him um, for a period of time. And then we'd go there and we'd talk to him. But somewhere during the process, it becomes a, well, how reliable a witness is he to his own life story? Maybe he's not. And there's a particular character in the film who, if and when you see it, uh, is quite a trustworthy character. And just before I was going off to see Diego again, uh, I said, as a joke, you know, I'm, I'm off to see Diego next week. Any advice? And he was like, yeah, just be aware that you'll be in the presence of the world's greatest liar. I was like, okay. And that comes into your head a lot when you ask a question and he answers it. And you're like, I can't do anything. This is like the opposite of everything I think is truthful. So that challenge of 
getting the truth out of someone because you've been researching a particular period of his life and he's become really good at just throwing a bomb, which he thinks most journalists, that's your headline written for you. Go off and write your headline. And you're like, that's not what I need. I want to actually know what happened at a particular point. So going round and round in circles until he realizes I'm not going to take those other answers. That was, that was nice to have. That was good to have. And most of the other people in the film that I spoke to Pretty much everyone actually said, if he's not on board, I don't talk to you. So that, in this case, it was all about him. From the audience, Asif was asked how he handles the pressure from those who want editorial influence. You just have to, whatever you do, have a kind of gut instinct of what it is that you think you're trying to say and what you're trying to do, and to stick with that and, and not, not listen to everyone too much. Listen to certain people at the right time, but there are other moments when... I just don't care what people think. Sometimes we have screenings, and it's not the fact that I, I... And I do ask questions, and, you know, we have really bad screenings for all of the films, and people just tear the films apart. And I'm quite... I will sit at the front like this and ask people, and everyone will just say, this is awful. You know, okay. And, and it's just the act of showing it and being in the room when the audience are watching it. I've, like, suddenly, I've got lots of solutions that I know we can do things that I would not have got to that point had I not put the pressure on for my brain to start working in a different way. And it's a bit like when you're shooting, your brain starts to suddenly work in a way that no matter what you do, if you're sitting at a desk, it just doesn't switch on. Mine doesn't. So, so the idea of having an instinct of what it's going to be about and what you're trying to say early and writing that down on a post-it above your desk and sticking to, why am I doing this? What do I want to do? What was the point? With Amy, it was like, I want to know the answer to that question. Why was no one looking after her? Um, I can't remember now what Senna was. I'd have to look up. But with Diego, it was just like, what a mad, bloody life. And in a way, it's, that's, the film is like, how do, you not, how do you not go crazy if you live these lives? I think that's been running through. A lot of the films, these three films, are also about outsiders. And I'm interested in these characters sort of fighting against the system. And I think that's just a kind of thing that I'm interested in personally. So there's always like, what's the theme that you want to come through, I guess? So... Given Maradona's history of feeding the press false stories, how did Asif handle his interview? You realize that um, a lot of this stuff is about getting past the entourage to get to the person and get to the person, in this case, at home, when he's on his sofa, when he's comfortable, when there isn't a kind of a machine of people. I, again, I don't bring a camera. I don't want that kind of performance. I do it on audio, the first interview, literally, he was sat on a sofa watching football on TV, and I was like, when he would pop out the room, I'd mute it, and then put them <laughs> a Zoom on the table and sit. In the end, I had to kind of sit at his feet to get him to answer into the mic, and it was literally, we just won an Academy Award, and the crew is me and one other on a Zoom, sitting on the floor in front of our hero, and that's like, this is filmmaking. But it was like, just to get him talking so that we can get past the BS, you know? And, and for him to kind of realize, eh, you guys are a little bit different to everyone else. Everyone else would have been happy with that quote I just gave you. And I'm like, that's not what we want. So we've just got to keep tapping away, digging away. Um, he did like Senna. That, that was one of the reasons why we kind of were able to get in the door. And so he'd seen that. And I was thinking, OK, that might help because he might understand what we're doing. But I also don't think anyone really understands what we're doing when we're doing it. You know, it's only after it's been seen. So his entourage becomes a big thing. How do you get to a star like him? How do you even get past the lawyers and boyfriends or girlfriends and you know, people who were there in the gang who kind of 
will tell you, okay, tomorrow, you know, fly all the way to the other side of the world from, for an interview that you're going to do at 11 o'clock and we book a studio and we have all this equipment and then you get there and you're like, he's not feeling good today. And it's like, oh God, can you have told us? Yeah, come back tomorrow. So you book it again and tomorrow nothing happens. And then the third day, and we've got a big crew on this first trip, the third day it's like, okay, let's, we'll try again, he'll be fine by then. Okay, when you're there at 11 and it's like, he'll be there at 12. Okay, he'll be there at 1. He'll be there at 2. And then eventually someone says, why don't you just come to the house? So then we come to, and come to the house on your own, okay? So you go to the house on your own, and then you realize he's been asleep the whole time. And he, got, he gets up at four in the afternoon. And they knew that, but they just didn't tell you. So then you go, you could have just told me that. But they don't. And that became, all of the first trip was literally to find out he stays up really late, and he wakes up really late, and the time to get him is when he wakes up at four in the afternoon. I'll turn up on my own one other person who can translate, I'll record it myself, we'll go to his house, and he'll be really calm there. And we wasted a week just to find out that bit of information. Does that make any sense to you? So, so much of the time is just spent figuring out the characters and the world around them, and then you can actually start making a movie and talking to someone. And then when you start talking, then you have to work out the psychology of how to get the best out of somebody. And then I realized the less contact, the better for a while. Go away for nine months and just make the film. And then when you've got a film, come back and talk to him. Because actually, I quite like just going off and making the film. So even though he's around, it wasn't a regular conversation. Do an interview, process what he says, make the film, go back, interview him again. I think I'm still owed an interview, actually. We might do one more at some point when it's done. I want to thank Asif Kapadia for speaking with me. His new film, Diego Maradona, will have its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, followed by a screening at the Sheffield Doc Fest. It will be released in the U.S. later this year from HBO. Asif's previous documentaries, Amy and Senna, are available on iTunes and other digital platforms. Thanks to the CPH Docs Festival and Documentary Campus for hosting this conversation in Copenhagen. If you're in New York City, please join us in person for Pure Nonfiction at IFC Center. Each Tuesday, we show a documentary followed by a conversation with the filmmakers or other special guests. Our spring season runs through the end of May. You can find more information on our website. Thanks to our team, Series producer, Hannah Nordenswan, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, who passed away in March at age 82. Our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Pure Nonfiction. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, or sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Pure Nonfiction.